following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I am delighted to be with you. I have heard with my ears from Pastor Groff great things that the Lord is doing here. So it's a blessing to me to be able to see it. I don't have to be like Abraham who heard the promises and uh, only knew them from afar, but looked forward to them. I can see with my own eyes that uh, the Lord is, is definitely among you and blessing you. And so it is a delight and a privilege to be here and to preach the Word of God to you. One of the things that often strikes me as I read Scripture is how it will throw together two things that seem to be worlds apart. Uh, sometimes there are things that we don't only think of as separate, but as altogether contrary to each other. The classic example that always comes to my mind, which is very relevant to the text today, is the example of Peter witnessing the good confession when Christ said to him and the other apostles, Who do you say that I am? And then Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which Jesus then responded to by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he says that this is something, an insight that was given by his heavenly Father. It was a true, a genuine insight. But then Jesus, immediately on the heels of that, says, Oh, perfect time to tell the disciples that I'm about to go up to Jerusalem and be crucified. Peter recognized not only that these are two very different ideas, but he thought that they were in fundamental conflict. Now, I've heard that uh, Pastor Pipa is preaching through the book of Job, so I'm sure you're learning something uh, other than that, that these are not the sorts of things that are necessarily in conflict. Uh, in the case of Job, we see a righteous man who's suffering. It's not necessarily the case, as, as striking as it is to us, that such things don't go together. But Scripture often does this sort of thing, puts two things together. For example, if you read the Psalms that speak of the, the glorious uh, exaltation of our Lord and His reign, they're often found in texts that speak most of His suffering. Think of Psalm 2, where it talks about the nations raging and the peoples conspiring against him. They want to cast his cords from off of them. The New Testament tells us that this was what happened when Pontius Pilate, the leaders of Israel, uh, Herod, the ostensible king of the Jews, all breathed together, conspired together to kill the Lord Jesus. The disciples even mentioned this in their prayer after they were being persecuted for witnessing to his name. But it's in that same psalm that it talks about him ruling over the nations. And it's in the same psalm where it says to the kings of the earth, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. You see something similar in Psalm 22, a psalm that begins with Messiah saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, as the psalm goes on, it says things like, All who go down to the dust, or all who lick the dust, will kneel before him. Now, these are surprising things. Well, uh, along with this is, is something very interesting that you see in the Gospels. 
we confess that our Lord, in his saving work, has entered into two stages, if you will. Uh, a state of humiliation, right, uh, consisting of his descent to be born of a woman, uh, to live an ordinary human life, to suffer the malediction of sinners, uh, their rejection to be betrayed by Judas, one of his own companions, and eventually crucified, uh, buried as well. Uh, and we also read of his exaltation. He saves us by ascending into heaven, uh, there to represent us. He's seated on the throne. He rules all things uh, in order to dispense his salvation to us. He defends us against our enemies. Uh, all, all these sorts of things. Well, when we think of Christ on the cross, we rightly think of it as the lowest point of that humiliation into which he entered on our behalf, and therefore as the extreme opposite of his exaltation, his session at the right hand of the Father. Or we might think of it as the extreme opposite of what Matthew 25 tells us. I understand that Pastor Groff is preaching on Matthew. I'm sure he's not close to 25 yet. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, on, in Matthew 25, we read of Christ coming in glory, angels with him, and he'll be seated on his glorious throne. And we're told that he's going to separate every, pe every person, one from another, the, the sheep from the goats. The sheep he's going to place on his right, and the goats he's going to sh uh, place on his left. To the former, he's going to say, come you, blessed of my father, almost similar to the way he spoke to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Come you, blessed of my Father, and enter the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But what's interesting to me about this is Matthew 25 and 26, if you read them carefully, it's almost like it moves seamlessly from this picture of Christ coming in royal splendor to judge the world, to talking about his crucifixion. Read it closely. In fact, you'll see what, what's 26 all about. Well, one theme, at the least, that runs through it is this notion of Christ as king. Of course, a lot of it is intended as irony, but the, the, the gospel author, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is intending for us to see through what their mockery intended to the reality. Uh, they say things like, you know, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Well, that's because he's the king of the Jews, he's not saving himself, right? That's part of the irony. But this runs all throughout the text. And so, again, Matthew is doing something that we see all throughout Scripture. He's putting two things together that we think of as very different. But he's doing it even further than just saying these two things belong to the same person. It's almost as if the cross is being presented as Christ's royal throne, and that's true in the other Gospels, by the way. Uh, if you look at John's Gospel, for example, uh, it, it frequently makes reference to Christ being lifted up. Now, if you just hear that language, lifted up, you might think that it's referring to his exaltation. That'd be a natural conclusion. Uh, in fact, we read in Isaiah 52 language that is talking about that. Behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up. Very significant language. It's the same language that Isaiah used towards the beginning of the book for Jehovah. When he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's Isaiah seeing the same one, that servant, and he says, 
As you go on, this is again the striking thing. He begins, he'll be high and lifted up and then goes on to talk about him suffering a most humiliating death. Well, that's exactly what, what Matthew and uh, John and the other gospel writers are doing. But John uses this phrase, lifted up, numerous times. And while we might normally think of it as a statement about his exaltation, his session, it's actually used quite differently. Think, for example, of John 8. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Our English translations don't do us justice here. Sometimes they'll say, I am he. But he literally says, I am. It's a hearkening back to the way God referred to himself throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am. How strange it would be to think that Jesus there is talking about the cross. He's going to be lifted up on the cross, and that's going to be the great revelation of who he is? What sense does that make? And yet, notice the phrase, when you lift up the Son of Man then you will know that I am. He's not talking about the ascension. The, the Jewish hearers didn't lift Jesus up to heaven. He's talking about the cross. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am. Or think of another example in John 3, and we could go on with this, but I'll make this a final example. But in John 3, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Here, Jesus spoke of being lifted up and granting eternal life to those who believe in him. Again, you'd most naturally think, uh, here he's, he's making reference to a gift that is a divine gift. Who else can make such a promise? In fact, in, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, God said, See now that I am, that's the literal Hebrew, there's no God besides me. I put to death. I make alive. It's I who wound. It's I who heal. There's nobody who can deliver or snatch out of my hands. You've heard those words before. Jesus says them in John 10, for example. Nobody can snatch the sheep out of his hands. He gives them eternal life. Right? So this sounds like a divine prerogative, and it is. And yet it's connected to his being lifted up on the cross. He likens it to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Quite obviously a reference to the cross. Well, all that we see throughout Scripture we also see in Luke, in our very context, the, the verses that we're looking at this morning. All throughout Luke 23, we have ironic references to Christ as king. In verses 1 through 5, we're told that uh, Pilate asked Jesus if he's a king, and Jesus replied, it is as you say, which is immediately followed by Pilate saying, I find no guilt in this man. He's, he's innocent. Now, Pilate, of course, is not intending to affirm that Jesus is king, but that's almost how it, it ends up reading. It's as if he ends up unwittingly testifying to the truth. We see that sort of thing often in Scripture as well. Well, then that's followed with Jesus being taken to Herod, who was considered the king of the Jews. He was a puppet king put there by Rome. But he was sent to Herod to be examined, and in verses 6 through 12, we're told that Herod and his men treated Jesus with contempt and mockery and found no grounds to condemn him. So they're mocking him and all the rest, they don't believe his claims, but they don't have anything that they can 
hold on to as grounds for his condemnation. And so they send him back to Pilate. And then in verses 13 through 25, we're told that Pilate succumbs to the pressure of the Jewish priests, the rulers, the people, and agrees to crucify Christ atop Mount Zion. Now, here's, again, it ties in with the irony in Psalm 2, where it talks about the, the kings of the earth banding together against the sun. God responds to them and says, yet I will install my uh, son as king on Zion. Right? The, the son says, I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So God is going to establish his king on Zion. And here's Jesus being crucified on Mount Zion. All of it, again, pointing to the cross as if it were his throne. Now, why is this significant? Well, I've been trying to sort of build a picture here for you because what I want you to see is if the cross is being pictured as if it were his royal throne, then isn't it interesting that you have two men pictured here, one on his right and the other on his left, one who's going to confess him unto salvation and one who isn't. It looks like a picture of Matthew 25 in certain respects. And certainly it's how Luke intends for us to see it. He intends for us to see that the final judgment, when Christ is seated on his throne, is ultimately determined by our response to Christ on the cross. Do we look to Christ on the cross as our only hope of paradise before God? That's the fundamental question that I want to address with you uh, this evening, and that means also that one of the questions you need to be asking yourself is, which man do you identify uh, with? Which man do you identify uh, with? Well, let's look then, in light of this, at these two men, and, and I want to look first at some of the similarities between them. First, we have good reason to conclude that both of these men were Jews. So, both were part of the covenant people of God. Both were Jews, both were part of the covenant people of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, number one, because these men are being crucified. That tells us at least this much, they're not Romans. Romans would not be crucified. That's why when you read of the martyrdom accounts, you, you hear... For example, of Paul uh, being crucified, or excuse me, Peter is crucified under Nero, but Paul is beheaded, right, because he was a Roman citizen. So the fact that these men, now Paul, Paul was a Jew, but he had his citizenship from uh, his father. We're not given all the details of that, but his father was a Roman citizen. He could have purchased it or in, in some other way uh, attained it, but uh, Paul was unique. Generally speaking, Jews just weren't Roman citizens. Uh, so certainly these people weren't naturally born Roman citizens. But the other thing that stands out here is that Luke refers to these men as criminals. But Matthew and Mark use a more a specific term that means robbers or insurrectionists. And it was a term ordinarily used for Jews who were trying to topple Rome or bring about some, some great conflagration so that Israel could rise up and reestablish its hegemony. So it was a, a term characteristically used for Jewish insurrectionists. In fact, it's the term used for Barabbas in John 18 and also in Mark 15. 
And in those passages, by the way, we're told that there were other men with Barabbas. And that would make a lot of sense. You can't be a very good insurrectionist all by yourself unless, you know, you've got more sophisticated uh, artillery like today. But uh, so Barabbas had men with him. And it's quite possible that these two men were part of his troop, part of his entourage. But in any case, the same term is used for them that's used for Barabbas. So these men were... As, as far as we can tell, all, all signs point to them being Jews, members of the covenant, at least outwardly. A second thing these two men had in common is that they were both suffering. That much, I think, is obvious. Verse 40 says they were under the same sentence of condemnation. And this, of course, is not only true in a political sense. The whole idea here is that these men are being portrayed as guilty. Right. The civil magistrate is ordinarily the means by which God uh, administers justice against criminals. Right. Every once in a while, or maybe more often than we'd like, the civil magistrate doesn't get it right, uh, especially when they're persecuting Christians. But this is God's ordained means of, of punishing criminals. And so the idea is that these men are suffering for their sins. There's their violations of the law, both of man and of God. Well, what is the significance of this? Uh, one application that I would make here and, and want you to think through is the fact that simply being members of the covenant, being Jews, didn't mean that these men were not under a sentence of condemnation. It didn't automatically mean that these men were not subject to judgment. It's often assumed that by some that if they are raised in a covenant household, then that means they're okay. And I've even seen it in the reverse direction. In fact, I've seen it with my own parents. It's, it's even stranger to think of, I think, if something can be stranger. I, I've often heard my parents speak as if they had, they don't have faith in Christ. When my dad died a couple years ago, and my mom is still alive, but I, I remember when my dad was alive and uh, they would sometimes talk to people and they'd introduce me and they'd, they'd say, my, my son's a minister or my son is this. And, and the way they would talk was almost as if, uh, in fact, here, this, this might put it uh, more clearly, sometimes people would say, because I would have friends with me and they'd say, oh, are you guys believers? And uh, they'd say, well, our son's a Christian, you know, a minister and, you know, they, things like this. And I'm always thinking, what kind of answer is that? And... Uh, Apparently, I didn't teach my parents very well um, growing up. <laughs> no, but this is sometimes an assumption, simply because we are children of those who profess faith and we're okay. Well, these men are examples to the contrary. These men are proof that merely being outwardly identified with the people of God is not sufficient. Merely being identified with the people of God outwardly is not sufficient. Well, and, uh, I've, I've mentioned some things that these men have in common, but I want you to also notice their, uh, the stark differences. Now, we know that starting out, these men both seem to be in the same spot when they're on the cross. If they, they, they're on the cross because they were insurrectionists. So both of them landed there because they, were, uh, they weren't believers, right? They didn't 
live by faith. It was evident by their actions. That's why they're on the cross. So both of them arrive there. The other Gospels tell us that even on the cross, both of them were cursing Jesus. So something happens in the midst of all this. Something happens in the midst of all this that leads one of the men to repent. And this is what I find quite striking in this, one of the things I find striking in this account, and that I think gives hope to us for our children. And it also is instructive to us. It tells us something about what we should be doing. I mentioned a moment ago these are covenant, members of the covenant. And yet they become insurrectionists. They're in violation of the law of God and of man. They're being condemned to death. And yet uh, one of them comes to faith. So what is it that's happening there? Well, uh, I'm hoping that you know, we can, uh, even without my help, I'm always hoping people are sort of moving along ahead of me so that uh, I'm not uh, uh, suggesting something to you that you're not already prepared to hear from what has been said, but by virtue of being members of the covenant, they did have great blessings, didn't they? These men would have grown up hearing the Word of God, read and preached. I read two large sections of the Word of God to you this evening. Your children have heard it as well. Maybe not everyone has come to faith, but those words, those words have life. And at God's will, at any point, he can cause them to take root in a person's heart and spring up. One of the things that I, I still marvel at today, I was converted in 1993. I was 18 years old. I was in prison. I was a thug running the streets of California. That's how I got interested in prison ministry. That's where I was saved. I know God can save criminals. He can save sinners. And, uh, but I, I was converted in that context, and I don't remember really going to church in my life. I, I know that I did. I went to church when I was really young. My mom had taken me to church. But when I came to faith, I was uh, at, at certain points able to quote certain Bible verses, and then somebody says, oh, you read the King James. And I said, the King James, what's that? And uh, I, you know, they, they were puzzled, and they said, well, you're just quoting the King James. And I said, well, what is that? They said, it's a Bible translation. I said, I have this NIV here. That's what my mom gave me. Somehow I knew verses from the King James. Now, at first, I thought this was some kind of miracle. You know, God had downloaded these things into me. I had all sorts of other naive ideas and stuff, but I was telling my mother like a year or two later, and she says, you know, I taught you how to read from the Bible. I used the Bible to teach you how to read. We used to have Bible verses that uh, she had me memorize. There was a time when my mom was at least faithful in, in some of these ways. And all of these things meant nothing to me. I didn't recall a one of them growing up. But eventually, the, like one day, they just sort of filled my mind. These things have a way of uh, coming back in God's providence. Right? Jesus told the disciples, right, that... He'll send the Spirit, and the Spirit will bring to your remembrance the things that I've spoken to you. That's what the Spirit was doing. And that is what's happening with this man on the cross. This man on the cross was no different from the other man, the man on his right, no different than the other man, and he comes to confess Jesus. But notice the sorts of things that he's confessing in contrast to the other man. He, he acknowledges that both of them deserve to be there. This man is acknowledging that he deserves death. And the other man, uh, notice what the other man is saying. The other man is uh, quite clearly not under the impression that 
uh, he deserves to die. He thinks Jesus should deliver them from the cross. Why does he think that? He thinks if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the king of the Jews, then surely he should be taking us off the cross. What I was doing was right. And that's, that's the upshot of this. This man believes that what he was doing was right. He's justifying his actions. Again, reminds me of the book of Job, where at the end of the book, God comes and upbraids Job, and he says, would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Well, here's this man next to Jesus, in effect, condemning him to justify himself. If he's the true Messiah, he'd take me off this cross, because I don't deserve to be here. So obviously, this man deserves to die, because he is dying. He's not the king of the Jews. He's a liar. That's what this man is, in effect, saying. So there, there's stark contrast between these men. One is confessing his need for Christ, and the other is rejecting his need for Christ. And it's all the more remarkable, isn't it, that it's happening while on the cross. Again, it's startling. Some of the greatest confessions take place at the cross. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, one other example uh, is when the centurion at the foot of the cross. If you look in Mark's gospel, it's even more radical. Because in Mark's gospel, Mark never records anybody, any human being, ever calling Jesus the Son of God. Right? The demons call Jesus the Son of God in Mark. But not even Peter is recorded calling Jesus that. Not that Mark is saying Peter didn't acknowledge it. But Mark does this thing that's just amazing. He never puts these words in the lips of anyone. Until you get to the cross where this centurion, a Gentile, is confessing his sonship. So remarkable things are taking place at the cross. Uh, the, the conjunction of things that you just don't think would go together. Confession of him as son of God. Confession of him as Lord. In fact, notice all the things that this man is confessing concerning Christ. He says that, first of all, he deserves to die himself, but Jesus doesn't. So he confesses Christ's innocence. He says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's identifying the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom, as his kingdom, which is tantamount to acknowledging his deity. So this man, in contrast to the other, is showing us what it looks like to respond to Christ on the cross. It's showing us what it looks like to confess Christ unto salvation. Well, what is the consequence of all of this? Well, all of that leads up to Christ's words to the man when he says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I made allusion a moment ago to the, the fact that this, not just allusion, but ex explicitly mentioned this man tacitly saying that Jesus is divine, though he's being crucified, calls it his kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But now consider the words of Jesus. Who could make such a promise unless he were God? When Jesus says to the man, today you'll be with me in paradise, think earlier in the Gospels. Remember when Jesus said to the paralytic man, for example, son, your sins are forgiven you. How do the religious leaders reply? They say, who does this man think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, here's Jesus going a step further. What Jesus says here goes beyond simply declaring the man's sins forgiven. He is declaring them forgiven. That's entailed in what he says. But he's promising this man paradise and telling him he's going to enter paradise that very day. Who does this man hanging on a Roman cross think he is?
Well, what are the implications and applications of this? Well, I've already made several observations, but I want to make some more, but also press some of these home. In this short little passage, we see the gospel, the gospel of Christ. We learn that the Lord Jesus is God. It is his kingdom. He has the power to give life, to pardon, to, to grant paradise to repentant sinners. We learn that Jesus was innocent, that though a man, he came into the world, never sinned, and died on a cross, but not for his own sins. We learned that Jesus was doing all of this, not saving himself, in order that he might save others. And we learned that those who acknowledge their own guilt and confess him and look to him to be part of his kingdom are assured eternal, of eternal life. This is the gospel all in a nutshell. It's a wondrous thing to see how often Scripture can pack so much into such a short space. One of the evidences, I think, of its divinity. One of those fingerprints that God has left upon it to, to demonstrate that it is, is His Word. But here we have the Gospel. And in effect, we have an example of justification by faith. We don't have the language here. The text doesn't mention the word justification. That's Pauline terminology. It doesn't mention the word faith even. But that's obviously what's happening here. This man is responding in faith. And Jesus promising in paradise is saying, in effect, you are pardoned. In effect, he's telling him, you are justified. And by the way, this is a prominent theme in Luke. So by the time you get here, Luke doesn't even have to use those words. Read through the Gospel of Luke sometime. You'll notice that over and over again, Luke will constantly talk about people being saved by faith. Your faith has saved you. Sometimes it looks like it's just talking about them being healed, but in certain contexts it becomes very obvious that he's not talking merely about being healed, but about salvation. He says to the woman, you know, your sins have been forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, over and over again. It's in Luke that we get that parable of the publican and the tax collector who go to the temple, right? And the, the publican is trying to justify himself, Luke says. And he tells God all the things that he's done boasts of his works and so forth. But the publican, uh, or the Pharisee, the Pharisee, I don't know if I said that backwards, the Pharisee boasts of his works, I pray, I fast, I tithe, and all these things. The other man, it says, wouldn't even dare look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So Luke has been preparing for just such a thing all along the way. And by the way, uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention about this, because so many people think this way, they think that what we see on the cross is sort of like a, uh, it's an exception to the rule. Often people will sort of uh, create this idea by saying things like, uh, by referring to it as a deathbed confession. Now it is, it does show us that even in a person's final hour or minutes, they can confess Christ and be saved. Certainly teaches that. But Luke's point isn't so much to say that as to say that even a notorious sinner, simply by confessing Christ, believing in Him, can receive pardon. That, that's Luke's point. That's been his point all throughout the Gospels. This is not an exception. It's not just trying to show us what could happen to a person if they come to faith at the end of their life. This is Luke telling us one more time, before he leaves, you know, before he concludes the Gospel, 
Turn to Christ, trust in Him, and you will be saved. So this is the overarching point of this text, that Jesus is Lord. Those who turn to Him in faith are promised pardon, are promised paradise. But we also learn from this text, as I've already said, that simply growing up as a member of the covenant isn't sufficient. We need to have faith in Christ. We need to believe in Christ. We need to believe that we are guilty and deserve judgment, but only because of Christ we are spared of that final judgment and assured of pardon with God. So merely being members of the covenant is not sufficient. We must have the same faith as our parents, not simply uh, be their natural descendants. But it also, I think, instructs us uh, of the need to be diligent in instructing our children and our youth. And I think this text gives great hope. I mean, some I know people that have had children that have wandered off. And in their minds, I mean, what could be more heart-wrenching to a believer? If you believe that trusting in Christ alone saves and delivers from divine judgment, what could grieve your heart more as a believer than that one of your own children has turned away from the faith or is not showing evidence of true belief? Well, this text gives hope. It gives hope that even in a person's final hours, having heard the scriptures, that God could cause them to take root. This is why it was so, uh, the example of Augustine's mother, you've all heard hopefully, if you haven't, go check it out. The example of Augustine's mother who prayed for her son. He, he wasn't a great uh, uh, boy. He wasn't a great teen or youth or even in his early uh, life. Uh, he, he was uh, a reprobate in many ways. But his mother continued to pray for him. And one day, it took root. One day, her, her prayers were answered, and her son was saved, and he became one of the greatest of the early church fathers. He was the favorite father of people like John Calvin. They quoted him more than others, with the possible exception of Chrysostom. But notice what this assumes. If this text gives us hope that our children could come to faith, even later in life, hopefully, that we don't ever see them turn away. We never have to see that. They just carry on the faith. But while it gives us hope, it also presupposes something, doesn't it? It presupposes that we've done the work of instructing our children. The Spirit can't bring to their remembrance things they were never told. He could, of course, in His sovereignty, send somebody to tell them what they've never heard. But the blessing of being raised in the covenant is that you are given this privilege that you are told these things. Well, there, there are more applications that uh, could be made of this. One of the things I always encourage people to do as they uh, go is not to consider what I've said an end of your reflection. Uh, our catechisms talk about the importance of improving upon what you've heard. That's part of our duty in uh, uh, listening to the Word. We're to listen to it, right? We're to, to be prepared to hear it. We're to receive it. We're to meditate upon it. But you're to improve upon it. And there are various ways to do that. Uh, one is simply by thinking through the passage and uh, thinking through its applications, but also speaking about it with one another. That's something our catechisms also talk about, conferring with one another. So I would encourage you, as we wind to a conclusion here, that you would not let what I've said be an end of this. Continue to meditate on these things, as Psalm 1 says, meditate day and night. 
and talk about them. Talk about them with your spouses, uh, with your friends, and do so in the company of your children. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.